happening now. We want to welcome our viewers from across the United States and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room. Good morning, good day, good evening. This is EdTech Situation Room, episode number 225 for July 28th, 2021. My name is Jason Neifer, and I am the Assistant Director and Curriculum Director of the Montana Digital Academy, the state virtual school located in on the fabulous University of Montana campus right here in Missoula, Montana. And joining me, as always, good evening, Dr. West Fryer. How are you tonight? Good evening, Jason. I am well, and I am enjoying this last week of summer vacation before I head back to school. Our kids will come back in about three weeks, I guess, on the 18th. But be back to get get back in the saddle again. And uh, it's been it's been good. So... I've been working on updating my website and making, trying to make things less complicated and taking out incriminating things that say you haven't updated your website in a long time, like <laughs> a Google Plus link. I was like, oh, that's really nice. Nothing says relevant like connect to me on Google Plus. Uh, it's funny because I actually <laughs> looked a couple weeks ago at uh, uh, I'd run into an archive of my old blog and um, I had written an extensive blog post about Google Plus and said that this technology is interesting, but it's too little too late to beat Facebook. And the only thing that would survive from this is Google Hangouts. As it turns out, I was a prophet. I was correct in that Google really wouldn't make a lot of play in the social media space, but Google Hangouts will be a big deal. And considering that's the uh, you know, intellectual predecessor to Google Meets, I have to say that that uh, I seem to pick up on that. And it's a, certainly a daily part of my life as a Google virtual administrator. I'm honestly glad Google Plus died, you know, when it, not that we're going to go down a rabbit hole with this, but anyway, quick thought. When it, <laughs> when it set up, I was just like, oh, great. You know, here's another place that yeah. I'm going to have to post and, and share stuff. Anyway, and it's interesting how that all goes in waves. Well, well, what are we going to actually talk about besides Google Plus tonight, Dr. Neifer? I heard well, a rumor that this was like the weather and food show. Uh, weather True and food false. show could could be. I mean, we could certainly talk about that for the hour, but we have other topics to talk about tonight, including media literacy, privacy, Apple, uh, Microsoft, Google News, social media, some food for thought uh, for me. And it's this will be a little bit down a rabbit hole, a little bit of information from Wes about upcoming PD and, of course, our Geeks of the Week. And what we like to do here at the EdTech Situation Room is take a look at headlines from across the technology sphere, kind of shoot it through the prism of, of education and, and, and maybe how some of the micro and macro trends of technology might impact classrooms, uh, all the way from tech directors down to individual classroom teachers. Wes, uh, you did the bulk of the work tonight on links is there a particular place you'd like to start tonight oh let's see um hmm why don't we why don't we talk a little bit about um just google let's start let's start there uh several several different headlines so um i put this one and actually our daughter is continuing to our middle daughter to to do some nannying and she mentioned that one of the kids she's nannying has all this bad spam with Google Calendar on her iPad. Anyway, she was helping her take that off, and that that's related to this article. So Ars Technica on July 23rd said, Google is finally doing something about Google Drive spam. Um, and that can also sometimes, I guess, manifest itself in Calendar and other places. But um, there's a basic, I guess, set of tools uh, two years after Google had officially acknowledged this program to try to address this. And um, you know, Gmail's got great spam controls, but uh, this is talking about Drive uh, anyway. So maybe this isn't saying this is in, in calendar, but I don't know. I haven't been plagued by this a lot, but evidently, you know, there are folks that have been facing it. So is this is this an issue that you've seen or heard about or experienced yourself, Dr. Knight? Um, I've heard about it before, but just like now, in fact, I went to go look right now in, in my uh, shared with me folder in Google Drive, and I don't recognize all this stuff, but what I would say is that it seems fairly likely that uh, a lot of this was... Um, uh, you know, old things I clicked on that were publicly shared, and then it ends up on the share your shared with you folder. But I mean, some of this stuff is old, 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 like uh, going back to 2007, 2008. Um, and uh, when it was just Google Docs that people were sharing with each other. But yeah, it's never been a problem for me. But I, I have talked to and seen over the shoulder other individuals that said that it was a pretty big deal for them. It was a, it was a, a bad deal. So I'm, I guess I'm not surprised from the standpoint uh, that others are experiencing issues. 
Um, so several other uh, Google related articles. Um, Google is, this is TechCrunch on July 20th. Google is letting viewers tip their creators. Um, and, you know, I, I've mentioned it on the show before how one of the more valuable and surprising things I did last year with my students, I'm going to do it again, uh, is just kind of get a sense of, you know, some of their favorite YouTubers and, and who they're watching and listening to. And so it's always a, a moving you know, target as far as, you know, not only what social media students are using, but, you know, who they're listening to. And, and, uh, I don't know, maybe I'll do a survey this year to, to get a little bit of a sense. Cause I think, you know, I think at least half my kids are really watching, watching YouTube a lot. So, um, anyway, that's probably not going to be impacting us here at the EdTech Situation Room since we've not set up any kind of monetization. I don't know if you have to like, you know, have a certain level of subscribers or something like that. I think you pretty much probably do because in order yeah. to monetize your channel, you have to have over a thousand subscribers and then you have to have X number of views in the past, like three months or year or something like that, which interestingly on my personal channel, I actually crossed that threshold. I don't know about a few months ago, but that won't be affecting us. So we won't be cashing <laughs> in. However, you are, um, you're t- closely tied to some uh, YouTube uh, quilting uh, fame, are you not? Yeah, yeah crafting fame. Crafting um, fame. The okay. uh, Gail Augustinelli channel on YouTube uh, just hit 50,000 subscribers a couple of weeks ago, and uh, she oh. uh, posts videos, I think it's daily, not weekdays, but daily, and, um, and I will say, knowing a little bit about, uh, she has her son, Mike, who's a a close friend and a colleague of mine at the Digital Academy, and um, I, you know, between all of her ventures that are related to it, it it's it, it's definitely compensation that would be for a full time job. One of the things that think is super interesting because um, I, I have really mixed feelings about the notion of creators because I do hear I, I do hear a lot of kids saying they want to be YouTube creators or creators as a job, and in a lot of cases it just doesn't happen, right? Like I, I, I've had students in the last, uh, well, they would have been students from now 11 years ago now when I was still in, in high school classroom that, you know, were, were kind of creators ish and they ended up somewhere in the industry, but not in the kind of self-published creator space, uh, you know, working for TV stations or becoming, uh, videographers or video editors or graphic designers, or I've had several students have become graphic designers. Uh, um, but, What's interesting to me is that, yes, it, it it's not a, a guarantee, right? Not all creators uh, make enough money to uh, uh, you'd have that as a full-time gig. But at the same time, a lot do. And as a matter of fact, if you can find a unique uh, niche and you can um uh you know share unique stories or 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 find an audience it is very possible to monetize in a way between you know it's it 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 very rarely comes from one source for the for the the middle or small time creators but between youtube ad revenue and perhaps merch or if you have a uh, amazon affiliate links or advertisers that advertise with you which is not not that hard to pick up once you get you know some some baseline popularity it is very possible and that's a very different thing from um, you know, obviously the, the media landscape 20 or 30 years ago, I still remain infinitely impressed with the variety of, of YouTube channels that, uh, you know, I, I, I certainly know and believe that YouTube has problems when it comes to, um, uh, uh, you know, creating, um, uh, political issues when it comes to, uh, you know, uh, uh, radicalizing people, uh, that, that are looking at political or perhaps, um, philosophical videos, if you will, on, on the YouTubes, but it's still probably my primary channel of, of information entertainment, and I love it. And there's probably 20 or 30 creators, many of which I actually fund via Patreon, um, that provide me both, you know, kind of infotainment and, and, and entertainment. And I th- it's, it's still at awe by that. Absolutely. You put a couple other uh, Google-related articles in there. Do you want to pick the one up about uh, Classroom and then the sure. Chrome OS? Um, last week, Google announced that uh, that they're continuing to adapt uh, uh, Google Classroom, and they're adding, you know, they're starting to add things that are making it a, a pretty legit learning management system. And, in fact, uh, in the blog post itself, and this comes from uh, Oscar Sharma, the, who is the product manager for Google Classroom, and uh, 
the blog post talks about, I mean, they are literally calling it a learning management system now. And that was uh, a term that, that I think both Google and frankly, I would have been hesitant to use, um, uh, 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 in relation to, um, um, uh, it, you, uh, it is a tool because I use a learning management system in, in delivering my, 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 uh, uh, distance learning program, but they're uh, talking, uh, with all sorts of, of, of new evolutions, including things like roster imports. Uh, you have to be in work, workplace education plus to be able to, uh, get automatic setup of classes and keep rosters in sync with the student information system. And they use uh, clever to help power that. Um, there are new add-ons that allow you to do interesting things inside of, of Google Classroom. Uh, these include, uh, familiar names like Edpuzzle and, uh, CK12 materials, Kahoot, Nearpod, um, Safari Montage. Uh, Adobe Spark for education. And then also they're starting to put some advanced features that would be more LMS-y, including um, scheduling assignments uh, across multiple classes. Uh, they're going to have offline capability, which I think is super interesting. Um, uh, I could tell you from, from my vantage point, that's sometimes hard to do if you have more nuanced assignments or have assignments that require the internet. Still interesting, however. And then also uh, there is some um, uh, new reporting available this you can see student engagement, so uh, more tracking, which would be available in a traditional LMS. And I would say I don't think it was Google's goal to create a learning management system when they created Classroom and the first several iterations of it. You know, it was a handy tool, but still quite short of a learning management system. But the bottom line is, is that um, it, it, the, I'm, I'm certain that COVID helped inspire them in that I know a lot of teachers have very successfully delivered a full distance learning environment via Google Classroom, and it's interesting to see that. So any thoughts about Google Classroom and its place in Classrooms, Dr. Pryor? Well, definitely. Uh, first, though, that article is awesome in that it has a sketch note at the top. Uh, I was just <laughs> participating in yeah. a, um, in a Texas online conference the last two days and caught some sketch noting sessions. So it's just a great way to, you know, have a summary of what they're doing. I agree that that roster import is a pretty big deal. Um, there's not the level of granularity with, you know, module, tra you know, activity tracking for what students have accessed and, and not conditional release. That was always something right. that was like a, you know, advanced thing in, in, in higher ed particularly, but just with uh, more sophisticated courses, you know, but it is a big thing for Google to uh, make that uh, claim. It's interesting that Classroom, at least this last year, wasn't officially part of G Suite. It fell under a different right. contract. But yet, I would say after Gmail, I don't know, Google Drive's key too, but Classroom is absolutely pivotally essential for a ton of schools. We talked about the Google conference that they had, I think it was back in February, where they talked about just the incredible number of users uh, that had come online during the pandemic and the way that Google had scaled up for it. So uh, as we've talked about on the show, Google is monetizing. It is not the, the free education show for everything. There's a lot that is still free. Uh, but there are these paid tiers and there's some, some good reasons to look at doing that, um, as an enterprise. And, um, I don't have this in the notes, but Eric Kurtz, if you don't follow Eric, he is absolutely the most unbelievable Google knowledgeable educator. And there's a ton. There's a lot of folks that are just super knowledgeable, but he did a couple sessions at this, um, you know, virtual Texas conference and, um, also, Tony Vincent just is amazing, and he shared – I should put this in there uh, – an infographic that shares the differences between slides and draw, Google Drawings and Jamboard. And so anyway, one of the things I'll be working on next week as our faculty get back is just some kind of updates, you know, what's new with, with Classroom, what's new with Google – uh, and so I'll be drawing on this blog post and others. Um, I don't think that some of these things like roster import are really going to affect us at this point, but, but who knows? And if that integrates with clever, uh, because I think this will be the first year we're going to use clever as a rostering platform, uh, for sure with seesaw. And then I think with some other tools as well. So thankfully I'm actually not in the, the mix of, of implementing that. 
Um, but <laughs> congratulations, Doctor Farr. Yeah, it's it's nice to have those things pass on to others. But uh, really great to see these these capabilities increasing, and it is absolutely a big deal to to have Google use the term learning management system with Classroom because they've never done that since the beginning. And I've done lots of sessions about you know Google Classroom, sees all these other things, and one of the first things we'd say is it's not a true LMS. Well. We could still argue that, I guess, but Google, Google's using the terms. Yeah, it's certainly getting there, I would say. Yeah, and Peggy's echoing in the chat room. Hello, Peggy, that Eric um, Kurtz's presentations in that DLC conference were were really fantastic. So, um, And, yeah, the recordings um, are available for the entire room, and I think – I don't know if they're going to break those up, you know, separately, but anyway, it's just a, a Cypress Fairbanks, I think, is the, the school district. They have like 90 campuses, a huge Houston area district. Um, but just a massive and well uh, put together online conference uh, with multiple YouTube live rooms and, you know, presenters coming in from around the, the country as well as their district over Zoom. And it was it was fantastic. It was really, really well done. So and that's great to have folks summarize those kinds of things. Perhaps we serve in some of that capacity for you as well <coughs> as we try to to read stuff and summarize. Uh, and then how about this bricked Chrome OS device? Sure. Uh, this article is from Ron Armadio, Ar- Armadio at Ars Technica on uh, July 22nd, but uh, he reported, uh, many outlets reported, that uh, there was a, a bit of an outage uh, um, on Chrome OS last week because Google um, had pushed out a, a, a bad update to Chrome OS, but as it turns out, um, it was just a single character that was off, that there was a, um, uh, 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 I believe it was a, a, like one and symbol, um, was the, the, the bad, the bad character and it ended up breaking some devices. Luckily, it's pretty easy to restore, um, a, a Chrome OS device and they pushed out, um, uh, an update that, that made it work out. But, uh, uh, there's two things for this. First, you know, type things carefully when you're coding. Um, second, uh, this is the second time this year that there had been a, uh, a bad update pushed out. Um, uh, it, it, even in the last month, there was one earlier that, that, uh, actually impacted one of my collection of Chromebooks that, um, would cause it to, um, uh, the CPU to ramp up. And, and in some cases you had one that was cooled down by a fan, um, uh, would kind of whiz the fan up and then slow it down to a crawl. So, uh, not great news for the Google and, but it luckily again, you know, uh, it worst case scenario, it pushes an update out and then you have to, you know, uh, power wash the Chromebook, but otherwise it's, it's in good shape. I have been playing by the way, with, uh, the new, in fact, I don't have it in this room. It's in the next room. But our new Dell Chromebooks with touchpads. And I will say I am pleasantly surprised with the stylus. Um, I just ordered like a little $10 like thing that's going to stick to it so I can slide it in. I think one of the hardest things this year is going to be keeping track of our of the stylus. But it's it's a relatively inexpensive stylus compared to like the Apple you know Pencil uh, or whatever. But um, I've been pretty pretty pleased with it. So I did some playing with Explain Everything and... Uh, I'm going to be doing a lot more of that in the weeks ahead. So what is your, uh, I know that we had the Kevin, the Kevin Toffel article. Um, there is no one perfect Chromebook, just like you can't say, Hey, what's the best car in the world? Um, but what is your favorite Chromebook right now? Just personally that you, um, that you have, and are you lusting for one? There's a two-part question. Um, I, you know, I lust for Chromebooks regularly because I'm an idiot (laughs) and I buy them, um, the the one I like most right now is is actually not uh uh not one that I I personally own. We we have a couple deployed in my organization, but it's the HP Chromebook 13C. It's the latest version of the HP Chromebook or kind of corporate Chromebook. And I think they're I, I mean I saw them on sale for as low as as four hundred and twenty dollars last week. It looks like um you know uh, uh, a thinner macbook pro maybe even a macbook air it's 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 uh aluminum and metal um what's the, what's the I, number of it i think it's a 13c 13c okay um 
Um, but it, it, it's, it, I think it's, 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 it's maybe not the best out there in part because I, I, I mean, I do do a ton of reviews or read a ton of reviews, but I, I, you know, I don't necessarily get to use many of, of the Chromebooks itself, but, uh, I like that one. Um, and then, um, all of the ThinkPad Chromebooks, the ones from Lenovo, they, I, I, I think those are almost always really, really great pieces of equipment. And, um, the one that I, um, um, uh, that, that is probably my daily driver is this is the, uh, ThinkPad, um, I think it's a, a yoga Chromebook, but this was, um, this was on Mega Clarence a couple months ago, but it's the first generation that has the super fast Ryzen chips in it. And it's ridiculously fast. It, it only has eight gigs of RAM. That was what was on the clearance bin uh, at Lenovo. So that's what I end up getting. I would have preferred the one with 16 gigs of RAM. It sounds ridiculous on a Chromebook, but if you are a power user that uses lots of tabs, it 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 uh, it doesn't make a difference. But the other thing I would tell you, and, and I keep saying I'm gonna write a blog post about this, but my blog post blog posting has been uh, pretty thin as of late. Um, but um, I. Um, uh, last week, I, I I have some computers in my home that run server kind of things. That they I have a media server at home, and I also have a um, network attached storage device that I run at home to to, to hold archives and my uh, now almost useless music collection and my Rev DVD collection and stuff. But um, I bought a, a, a this would have been a six year old. Um, uh, this was a used six year old Dell Optiplex. Um, and you would recognize it if you saw it because it's the standard Optiplex from, you know, five, six, seven years ago. It's the 9020 Optiplex 9020. These are literally ones that I could go to the state of Montana as a school and pick up free ones of. But this one was less than $100. It came with 16 gigs of RAM and a 256 SSD drive. Eventually, I went to into a server, but I installed Cloud Ready on it just to see how fast it was. And I, and plugged it into my 4K monitor with my side monitor over here. And it, it, it is, it, it's a wonderfully fast Chrome OS like device. And I would say that, you know, if you, you like Chrome OS and you want a desktop experience and you are okay with, you know, shopping on eBay or finding corporate refurbishers, um, or if you're a school and you have access to a state program like Montana State Surplus Program, um, you know, you can put great Chrome OS style devices. I would, even recommend if you're a school to buy the license from uh, Neverware that makes Cloud Ready the uh, kind of installable version of Chrome OS. It's now owned by Google. You know, that that environment, I think it's just so great. And I know I even with the lack of Android apps, I still think that Cloud Ready, uh, because the web is so functional, can be a really powerful and, and, and production based platform. So off in a rabbit hole there. But, you know, nonetheless, that's what we do. That's what we do best, ladies and gentlemen. We go, we go down rabbit holes. So they're geeky ones. Well, where yes. would you go? We got all the, the Google articles tonight. So how are we? Well, um, let's, um, actually, I have a story here. Let's talk about privacy. Uh, there was a very interesting article in the New York Times on, um, uh, uh, July 26th. Um, Aaron Wu reports that, uh, QR codes are probably here to stay. So, so the track and, and there's concerns about them. But I, I, the reason why this article piqued my interest is because I have to admit something. Um, and, and this article kind of, I, I feel vindicated by this article just a little bit. But I used to hate QR codes and um, people would use them all the time. Even people I really like and respect, like Dr. Fur, and, um, and I never really understood them because it seemed like such an epic pain in the butt to use them, right? Like people had to download a special app and they didn't really understand them. And I was like, just put a short link up for the love of all that's good. And people would put up, you know, all these QR codes around their classroom for open house night. And, you know, I'd see parents struggling with their phones. I was like, just this, this is not, it's not saving anyone anytime. Um, and, and then the pandemic came along, but I have to say that this article somewhat, uh, vindicated me in part because the rollout in the United States was not nearly as smooth as it was almost everywhere else around the world where QR codes are a huge deal. And then the other thing that's happened in the last two years is that the QR code reader is integrated into the iOS camera and Android camera. 
which I think changes the game completely, right? And so um, I, in, in the last two years, have bought into QR codes. I think they're a very interesting um, uh, way to to uh, quickly you know, bridge the physical to the digital. And I think it's, a, it's an extraordinary tool, especially since it's integrated directly in the camera. But this New York Times article talks about how, um, you know, you're going to a website when, um, you know, you, you click on that and all these businesses are using QR codes, whether it's to share a menu or to provide an ordering interface or to pay that that then allows some extremely accurate tracking of people because your browser is a treasure trove of personal information. And in the same way we've talked about, you know, a hundred times over uh, on this podcast that, you know, when you're on the web, um, chances are you're being pretty significantly tracked. And so um, QR codes are probably going to stick around uh, 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 from now on because they are so easy to use with, um, uh, with with modern day devices, but it comes with a risk. If you are, uh, you know, ordering uh, food at a taco joint and uh, there's no wait, there's no wait service. You just order the QR code and food is brought to you. With that, you know that they could sniff your Facebook cookies or they could sniff uh, other uh, uh, advertising trackers, and you can be tracked in that way. Now, to be clear. Low energy Bluetooth tracks you. Uh, I mean, there, there's a, there's, there's a lots of ways that, that they can track you. Last week you talked about the concern about cameras tracking you, right? So it, it's just another technology to do that. But when I read this article, I chuckled because QR codes used to be kind of like a real ugly for me. Well, I'm glad that they're going more mainstream. I mean, it's a good thing to go green and, you know, Agreed. we've just got a number of, of restaurants now that, you know, saving you know, money with, with menus and, and you just get the updated version. Hey, it's on your phone. Everyone's got a phone. Uh, what I would say is let's watch Apple uh, and then Google yeah. might follow suit because in the, in the newest version of, of iOS, which is, is out for developers, but not the general public, you know, it has features uh, basically to shut down mail tracking, you know, the way that, that these little invisible pixels in your in your mail and, and google has that where you you have to turn them on and it's and it's trying but it's also like i don't know able to cr- to create different email addresses out of your iCloud so that you can limit spam and anyway yep. google or sorry apple continues to be really serious about privacy so yep. um i'm glad that the the you know journalists at the new york times are are raising awareness about this I still think privacy um, is is something, and just the whole it's, it's it's surveillance capitalism. It's the whole undergirding economic model of a lot of uh, the free web, and that is that we trade our data for free services. Um, you know, the people do not, in my mind, understand and see uh, the the negative aspects of that to the to the degree that. They, they, we all probably need to, uh, anyway, we're at, we're at risk of going into the tech correction talking about that, but anyway, it's all related because the impacts that giving that data away and allowing, you know, companies and individuals and foreign governments to be able to utilize that for all kinds of purposes, whether it's just a nice little ad or whether it's like nephris and sabotaging our whole society and getting, you know, as we'll probably talk about this article, one in five Americans to believe that, you know, microchips are being implanted when they, you know, if they would get the vaccine. I mean, yeah. So there's some really bad impacts to that, but I think most people are probably still just kind of saying, eh, you know, so what? Hey, look, I have have the menu on my phone and they're not, they're not seeing those bigger impacts yet. Um, you know, we're, we're, we hear, we hear Congress talking about people being censored and conservatives being censored, but, um, the privacy aspect of that is, is not really something that, and I don't know what it, what it'll take. You know, we had Cambridge Analytica, so we had the 2016 election, you know, I, I don't know what, what it'll take, um, if it'll be possible for people to really, you know, become ardent, passionate, defenders but th- of, of privacy but thankfully apple is leading that charge and given the choice as we've seen with those statistics of like opt-in opt-out of tracking most people say oh no i don't i don't want you to track me you know even though the webs with the apps and the websites beg please it's so important to us that we track you anyway most people say nope you can't do that and then you have an article there that that is, is certainly related 
yeah. So this is a Recode article from July 21st. And uh, the headline of the article is a priest's, well, this outed priest story is a warning for everyone about the need for data privacy laws. And so um, there's been a lot of folks who've talked about the potential for this kind of thing. Um, but there um, was a, a Catholic priest who evidently had used the uh, location-based hookup app Grinder, and that data somehow got obtained by a group that then decided to publish that and, and, and embarrass him, and he ended up resigning. And so, yeah, um, data that you put into the web, the digital footprint that you and I leave uh, can have impacts on us. And especially when that data, which is what we're just talking about with privacy and things that are being gathered about us, when that data is up for sale, who's going to buy it? Who's going to get it? Or who's going to hack it and, and have access to it? So uh, a number of, of tech blogs and podcasts have been uh, talking about this. And, um, you know, the the recode, this, this echoes a lot what we were just talking about as far as, as privacy um, they say at the end, you know, what can you do? You can advocate for privacy laws that forbid these, pra these practices, contact your you know, f local and federal representatives. Uh, it talks about uh, state level privacy laws in Virginia and Colorado. Um, but, you know, the economy worth millions of billions of dollars, you know, is writing upon this. Uh, and so it's going it, to, it's a, it's a huge part of, the economy today and is not something that's probably going to change quickly, but you know, this it <laughs> could be a digital citizenship conversation. It, it, it certainly could be a conversation with fellow teachers and adults. You know, it, it could be with students as well. There's a, there's a lot of um, issues and issues about sexuality and things like that, that depending on your context, you know, kids may not be developmentally ready for that, or that could be something, you know, controversial to talk about. We have a lot of that going on right now, actually. Um, so, but I thought that was a headline worth mentioning. Absolutely. Well, let me do a couple of quick uh, other kind of the kind of techie techie articles, quick uh, Apple article. This is from CNET in July uh, 25th. Um, it, it's funny because, you know, I, I even though I, I, I happen to be on the Apple side of the world right now, what I will uh, absolutely admit is that Apple and, 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 and Android, I'm sorry, iOS and Android copy each other. And most of the features in one almost always appear in the other. So um, one of uh, an example of something is that um, uh, uh, Android has a very easy method to change icons. So you can add icon packs on Android and completely change the look of your phone. And there is a, a bit of a cottage industry around the world for people that will sell you theme packs. And, you know, a lot of people take a lot of pride in making their phones look interesting and, and artistic or funky. And so in, in iOS 14.7, you can change uh, app icons. And it's a little, it's a little funky because it involves, um, um, it involves the uh, widgets uh, feature, which uh, another uh, one that was kind of adopted from the Android world. And my understanding is it also doesn't allow you to uh, put app badges on there. So if you utilize that to give you data, like the number of unread messages or emails, and that's gone. But you can slowly and surely see, um, you know, some some from further app adaptation as uh, Apple kind of loosens the grip a bit on the iOS operating system. What is the status with your your uh, watch and everything? But Shelly, my wife, just uh, actually got a new uh, wa uh, Apple Watch Six for her birthday. So um, uh, I love mine. Um, it's been um, uh, I would I would say I wear it uh, uh, ninety nine days out of a hundred. Um, the health features are absolutely extraordinary, and what's likely to keep me in the the iOS uh, a sphere, at least for phone and watch, is um, the health stuff, uh, you know, I, uh, I, it, yes, sleep tracking is part of it a little bit, but I could get that with Fitbit. Uh, yes, you can, I can see my blood sugar on there and my blood sugar is currently 94. Um, so that's super nice. But the bottom line is that, 
um, the health apps, the, 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 the health app itself on iOS that plugs into all my different health pieces and can put together data. Um, like for example, um, I'm starting to, to, uh, after two years of hip pain, now that I have a, an artificial hip, I'm getting to the point of which I can start taking my evening strolls again. And I hope to start on my more aggressive morning and noontime walking schedule. And I'm getting more exercise than I was, uh, six, eight weeks ago. And, you know, one app is talking to another app. The sleep app is talking to my exercise app. And it says, Hey, as it turns out, when you get X amount of exercise during the day, you're, you, uh, you increase by 27 sleep points or, or that, that sort of thing. And I find that it to be invaluable. I do well, switching. My, my wife is, uh, is doing really well and really enjoying uh, a diet uh, and eating plan that she started this summer. Um, and she's also started to, you know, log measurements and statistics and doing some of those in, in her phone. And, um, you know, it's, I, <laughs> there's some great stuff that Apple is doing and it's hard to argue about advocacy for privacy rights as important as privacy is in terms of the relationship to all of the rights that we enjoy and, and health, fitness and wellness, like so important, so key, you know, and that, that, that's a conversation that <clears throat> I think we, we, I, I think we're seeing, you know, more of, uh, for instance, at educational technology conferences and, and, uh, sometimes it's in the, con- in the context of digital citizenship, but just, you know, self care and wellness and, and having data and being able to see where you're going and pat, identify patterns and all that kind of stuff. It's, uh, pretty exceptional. I, I don't know. And maybe you have any, some ideas about this, Jason. Like, when is that? you know, is that going to have any kind of impact on public schools? I think the Apple watches are so expensive, you know, it's, it's hard to get a device in the hands of kids like a Chromebook, you know, much less, you know, I mean, maybe, it, you know, colleges or private schools, but I don't know. You, you can't really just, I don't, I've never heard of everyone saying, okay, for this PE class, everyone's got to have an Apple watch, you know? So it seems like the educational impact of that, um, unless there's going to be companies that are going to, you know, come out with something that is much more affordable, the Chromebook for the watch. Um, I don't know. I, I just, I don't see that, you know, impacting um, education as far as like what's required, but certainly, you know, if, if your students have smartwatches, I, I know this poses interesting challenges in terms of wireless networks, right? How many Wi-Fi connected devices are we walking around with? And, you know, people are walking into, into rooms with, but it just, that part of it seems to be much more of a personal impact and, you know, impacting teachers at a personal level rather than impacting the classroom. So. Well, and I'll tell you, uh, you know, as a program that, that runs a distance learning PE program, uh, easily the most controversial and hard to explain thing we do, you know, a lot of people want to make it about devices and it's not a terrible, uh, terrible idea, right? There's so much data you can track with devices that can help, uh, you know, uh, provide accountability or, or affirmation that, that students are doing a self-reported exercise, but there still is a gap there, right? And, and I know a lot of, of, of great PE programs that use, uh, uh, step trackers and, and pedometers and, uh, you know, heart rate monitors and, 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 you know, in room provided, uh, 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 technology. And that's, uh, the, the BYOB, or I'm sorry, the BYOD part of this equation, uh, still has huge, uh, uh, manifestations of, uh, digital divide. So, yeah, I mean, there's, there's certainly a lot there. But, um, you know, uh, not everyone can, you know, like as you very correctly say, not everyone can afford a, you know, a, a four or $500 Apple watch, even if it provides extraordinary, um, advantage. It will be interesting as we continue to go further down the road, especially as long as Apple devices are, are working great. You know, this is my, my Apple watch three and mm-hmm. I know that I'd be able to get EKG and, you know, fancier tracking and fall yeah. all that stuff, but you know, until it, until it breaks, you know, there's no more updates or whatnot. Um, I think I'll probably stick with it. So, all right, well, let's talk a little social media and, uh, media literacy. These actually can all be kind of tied together, but I'll go to the media literacy category at the top. Um, and I don't know, I don't think we mentioned this one, uh, last week, but this was from July 17th and this is from the guardian. Uh, the majority of COVID misinformation came from 12 people report fines. Uh, I think we talked about last week, you know, the United States Surgeon General, uh, President Biden. Um, there's there's a number of folks who are really, really, uh, 
you know, talking in, in, in very critical terms about misinformation, especially as they apply to the vaccines, the way and ways in which, uh, you know, we're being harmed as a society. And, uh, you know, it's not in the show notes, but the CDC just changed their guidelines for schools yesterday. Right. I saw that headline in the Washington Post today that they're recommending yep. everyone over age two, you know, in schools uh, wear masks, which really <laughs> has some people in our house bummed out. Um, but this was an article that um, studied <laughs> disinformation across the entire web. And so um, the vast majority of COVID-19 anti-vax misinformation conspiracy theories originated from just 12 people. And they're called the disinformation dozen. Uh, and, um, you know, there's, you know, a, a pseudoscience physician, a bodybuilder, a wellness blogger, a religious zealot, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., the nephew of John F. Kennedy. Um, you know, some of these folks have been deplatformed on certain certain platforms, but not others. I mean, let's let's just say uh, it's it is unfortunate, and I and I and I'll anyway just it's the. <laughs> It's hard to talk about controversial topics today in schools. Oh, my gosh. But this would be a great topic if your situation and context is supportive and appropriate. I mean, what a what a rich article itself to analyze and look at because of all the things that this touches to and ties to, you know, issues of free speech and what, you know, can companies do? What should they do? You know, what should the limits of free speech do? I mean, what are the impacts of society if, if we've got, you know, so many people um, embracing conspiracy theories and believing things that are just flat wrong? Um, it's it, it really has huge impacts. And I've, I don't know, I've been turning over ideas for a blog post about how do we rebuild confidence in our institutions? I don't know how we do that. So your thoughts, Dr. Neifer, are you... Uh, a, were you following any of the disinformation dozen and did this, uh, did it come as a surprise to you at all? Uh, no, about the, the sheer number. Um, it just tells you how extraordinary the, um, uh, how extraordinary the, the reach is of, of viral content, right? That for me is where, um, uh, you know, there, it, 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 it's not surprising me at all, you know, based on, on how things run around. But, you know, the bottom line is that, um, um, we, um, I, I, I'm not saying that folks that didn't have a lot of credibility, um, didn't end up getting quoted in mainstream media sources 20, 30, 40 years ago, but the fact that information can be handed around, um, as fact, um, and it gets credibility just because someone you know and perhaps trust shares it. I mean, it really does uh, kind of turn, you know, sources authority on its ear. And, and I'm, I'm with you. I don't know how we fix this. And I fear it may take, um, you know, much more drastic action than any of us are willing to advocate for or take. But I don't, uh, you know, it, 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 it may ultimately, you know, be a civilization challenging um, problem. And I don't really know what to do about it either. Um, I had seen this report earlier, um, the, the actual release of the report, because I believe this, I believe this, this content was rather viral. So it, it went around, uh, um, and I didn't see any one of these folks either, or I wasn't following any of these folks either, but reading some of the backstories of some of them, I'm not surprised by it. And, you know, and a lot of times, uh, they also, um, um, uh, you know, are quite savvy about, you know, the ways they market themselves, um, um, uh, messaging is part of their power. I think that's a, a, a big part of this as well. So I'm a little, you know, uh, discouraged by, by this, but, uh, I remain hopeful that we can figure out a way to, um, resolve this and give people correct information so they can make good decisions for themselves and their families. Yeah. Well, along those same lines, the New York Times published an article uh, by Max Fisher on July 25th entitled Disinformation for Hire, a Shadow Industry is Quietly Booming. Back alley firms meddle in elections and promote falsehoods on behalf of clients who can claim deniability, escalating our era of unreality. And <clears throat> I don't have it in the show notes tonight, but I have 
almost finished. There's a, this six-part series called Q Into the Storm, which is about QAnon that is on HBO Max. And I think after I watch the last one, I may cancel our, our subscription. But um, this episode five I was watching this last week, like this article, talking about how you know, all kinds of groups, governmental groups, uh, governments acting against their own peoples in some cases in their own country, um, others like, you know, countering their their enemies. We are literally continuing to have the effects of a massive psychological operation, a psyop, which, yes, Russia and China and then other entities, state actors, non-state actors, domestic political groups, all kinds of different folks have been involved in. And it ties to surveillance capitalism and the way that our data is for sale and the ways that people can be targeted. But, you know, this idea of being able to flood the channel with with disinformation I've had several conversations in the last couple of weeks. One of them was just last night with a friend whose 85 year old mother, you know, gets so hyped up and emotional with whatever Tucker Carlson has talked about the previous day. And he spends so much time researching and then helping her try and sort of walk back from the cliff. And it is, it's just incredibly, incredibly challenging. Um, and I think it's also going to pose challenges for us again in schools. Uh, Montana is a pretty conservative state. Oklahoma is as well. Um, you know, we've got uh, the, the, the kinds of studies showing how many folks are really convinced of some different realities when it comes to things like vaccines, um, election results. Um, it, it, it just, it poses some, some real challenges to us. And I wonder how we're going to grapple with this Um you know, as teachers, I certainly continue to believe that we need to be focused on media literacy and critical thinking. And just as you said in the, the last little closing, Jason, helping people make good decisions for themselves and their families. I mean, that that is what we need to be focusing on. But, you know, we've got to also, um, you know, we got to walk the line between um, I mean, none of us probably want to be fired uh, for our jobs. And anyway, it just it's it is it's crazy. So, um, you know, this is this article is not saying something new. This stuff has been happening for quite a while. But the ways in which, you know, it's 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 global uh, and it's it's happening in so many different places. And there's so many different groups. It's really just it's embedded within our society. And it's not just like, oh, this is an Oklahoma or U.S. thing. It, it is. It's happening all over the place. Yeah, Absolutely. Okay, well, uh, here's a couple of social media ones that are just a little bit sort of quicker. Um, the Clubhouse app, which honestly, this this is a TechCrunch article from uh, the 21st. I have not been on, I think I even deleted the, the Clubhouse app. I mentioned on the show weeks ago that, like, knowing it's bad to share your contacts, like, as soon as I got accepted, oh, look, I've got the invitation. Is it okay to share your contacts? Tap. I mean, I have a lot of contacts. So uh, anyway, um, you don't have to wait for an invitation now. So Clubhouse is open to everybody. Um, Peggy is still, we got, hey, we have several live viewers. Any of you have experienced Clubhouse? I mean, it was a new thing to try. Um, have, have you have you been on Clubhouse, Jason? And, I have, you know, yeah. With it? My experience wasn't super great because two times I, so I got into clubhouse and then twice I got a notification that this meeting or that, you know, people were hanging out and I jumped in and it was a, a, a semi-private meeting after, in one case, it was a professional development event that teachers were doing. And a, a friend of mine was in there. He said, what are you doing here? I said, I just got a notification saying that this topic was happening and I like this topic. Um, and then the same thing happened and it was a post, uh, it was, a an online TEDx event, um, and that they were doing a, an after party and I jumped in and it, I mean, it was, it's, it's a very interesting concept. I just, eh. you wouldn't think people would be having private, 
private little events on a public, you know, anyway, yeah. especially if you understand how that app works, right? Because if you've shared your contacts, then it's going to lure you by, you know, giving you notification. If you've number one, shared your contacts, which I think you have to in order to even join it and do it. I don't know that you could opt out. Um, and then if you opt into the notification, so yeah, it's, uh, that, that is though an important thing to think about going back to the classroom. You know, we're, we're going to be Chromebook 100% for all grades five through eight, you know, guaranteeing access to your Google account, you know, installing an extension, making sure, you know, that something is not hedgy and then, you know, making decisions about what it is you want to share. Those are all good conversations. Um, Couple other fast ones. Twitter had uh, done this thing called fleets, which is like, you know, ephemeral content that's going to disappear, kind of like your Facebook story. Um, and so TechCrunch reported on July 14th, they're shutting that down. There just hadn't been a lot of people using that. <clears throat> Interestingly, I think it was on a podcast I'm, and I'm not going to remember which one. Uh, maybe it was uh, either, it could have been clockwise or twit. They were saying that Facebook is 10 times the size of Twitter. We talk about the power of Twitter and how much we like it, but they were saying that, you know, in terms of number of users and size and scale, and I don't know what that, what that looks like money-wise, but anyway, 10, 10 times the size. Um, Twitter for iOS has started to test a, a dislike button, uh, nine to five Mac reports on July um, 21st. And interestingly, you don't get to see the results as the person, you know, who even shared the tweet or is looking at it. It's like anonymous information that Twitter is going to is going to use somehow to, you know, curate the feed in some way. Uh, but they're in, I don't know if if no if no users can actually see the results, then that thing, it would seem like that's going to you know reduce uh, people's incentive. Uh, to uh, to use that, and then did you put that Verge one in about the big overhaul of TweetDeck? Are you a TweetDeck user? Uh, well, I am a on again, off again TweetDeck user. I still think that despite the fact that the interface is what seven, eight, nine, ten years old, that it's still a very useful a piece. And in fact, I know a lot of uh, a lot of very tech savvy and social media savvy journalists are big fans of TweetDeck because it allows you to create um kind of a watchful eye and a lot of different Twitter stuff at once. I love TweetDeck at conferences. Um, I've, I've run social media for a couple of conferences before and utilized TweetDeck as kind of a, 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 a master control to keep an eye on Twitter traffic and different hashtags and stuff. Um, I, I, I took a brief look at, at the screenshots that they were showing and we'll see. I mean, I, I hope that they don't, we just don't need them to create another web-based Twitter client. We need something that allows you to you know, do kind of that nuanced um, look at multiple accounts, multiple searches at once. But yeah, I like TweetDeck. It's always been a, a critical part of, of my engagement. And again, it's, 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 it's pretty amazing at conferences. Well, here is the last social media article we've got tonight. Uh, this one actually came from a July 9th podcast by your undivided attention, which is the, the center for humane technology. And if you remember that, that uh, very popular fall documentary, the social dilemma, uh, this was the group that was behind that. And so the title of that podcast, uh, again, from July 9th was a Facebook whistleblower. Um, and the article that they referenced, which is going back to April 12th is how Facebook let fake engagement distort global politics, a whistleblower's account. And so the, the interview is fantastic. I would, I would go and listen, listen to that interview for sure. But, uh, Sophie Zhang is the person who was at Facebook, uh, interviewed in that podcast and, and featured in this article. Not a high level coder or executive for Facebook, but had some really, uh, you know, kind of incredible insights and discoveries like, you know, I better get the country right, but like the president of some countries, you know, uh, the main person who is doing all of their social media, also running a whole bunch of fake, you know, pages and, and accounts. Uh, yes, the president of Honduras, Juan Orlando uh, Hernandez, uh, was amassing large numbers of fake likes on content he posted to his half million followers on Facebook. Um, and the, the, the uh, fake engagement stood out uh, in part because of, you know, IP addresses and tracking. And so anyway, um, 
the uh the the whistleblower in this case Sophie Zhang had, had had raised these issues with Facebook and it's really interesting to hear about how there's a there's a flat or there has been a pretty flat uh, organizational and reporting structure to Facebook. They talk about the military where it was like almost a sergeant coming to a general officer and being able to report and talk. And usually those those people just can't talk to each other. You know, the chain of command gets in the way. But uh, Facebook just has some really, really big problems. And, um, you know, we've we've been glimpsing them. And it's it's unfortunate that we have. Many of us, and myself included, a love-hate relationship with Facebook, right? I mean, the benefits of Facebook are so are so great that it's not something that I want to give up and am planning to, to give up at this point. Uh, but how these kinds of of situations, uh, it just, it shows how much power these coders have, you know, because if it hadn't been Honduras and it had been somewhere else, if it was India or, or, you know, China or, or, you know, think just larger nations and, and, you know, a bigger strategic relationship with the United States, you know, a low level coder wouldn't have been making decisions like, yeah, we're going to deplatform this person or, you know, take these pages offline or whatever. And so it's just, it is incredible how vitally important Facebook is, not only to communications here in the United States, but as we've talked about on the show, like Facebook is the internet for some people um, in some countries. And again, the power that coders have, and anyway, there's a, there's a lesson here on using your power for good and not for evil, but just, did were, were any of these coders prepared to make these kinds of calls? Like these are just, you know, geopolitical calls that, you know, impact the information in some cases, disinformation that is being shared slash spewed by, you know, government officials. And I thought that was a, an outstanding podcast interview and article. And I had not heard about that before. So are were you familiar with that case? And uh, no, I wasn't Uh pretty interesting stuff. And, in fact, I'm, I'm just thinking, I'm, I'm a little blown away just listening to you talk. Yeah, yeah. Well, hey, on the good side, this is the magic of podcasts, right? I mean, yeah. in this time of disinformation and whatever, I mean, it just depends upon the channels that we subscribe to. And huh. oftentimes I feel like I sort of am walking into the casino and roll, you know, spinning the roulette wheel, like, what should I listen to today? And I know Peggy's got, I think we all do have just a lot of podcasts in, in our, uh, our, uh, podcatchers and you know i never there's no way i could ever consume a fraction of, no. of content there but you close. know it's yeah. just it's cool you have your favorites and you try stuff out and somebody says something and, and recommend and anyway it's uh it's a, it's a wonderful aspect of today's media landscape and if anybody out there you're you're listening to a podcast so you're probably a podcast listener maybe you're watching this on youtube uh, or just seeing it live on facebook but podcasting and being able to, you know, have access to different voices and have these, you know, long form interviews. And it just is, it's such a wonderful, wonderful medium uh, that enriches my life. So right. that article is one example. I will also tell you that I also believe it is probably the most vastly untapped resource for classroom content too. Um, and I, um, I, I presented a, a, a couple conference sessions on this a couple of years ago. I'm strongly considering adding this back to my, my regular conference uh, presentation list in part because like, yeah, there's a lot of kind of garage band podcasts I would characterize in the most charming way. The EdTech Situation Room is a garage band podcast, you know, where a couple of guys get together on Wednesday nights and we have a, a pretty niche audience. Um, we do have an audience though, and we talk to our audience. I mean, I get, you know, I, I get stopped at conferences. So, um, you know, that, that, that's part of that. But, um, and, and uh, I'm not necessarily talking about the, the kind of more long tail aimed, you know, smaller niche podcasts, but there are probably tens of thousands of commercially uh, produced podcasts that have some application somewhere in your classroom. And uh, if I were still in the history, political science, and and uh, geography classroom, um, as, as I used to be, there's no doubt in my mind I would be u utilizing commercially produced, well, actually not be commercially produced, produced podcast as a content resource because, I mean, there are, I mean, they're just amazing. They're storytelling mixed with, with, with content. 
Um, NPR produces outstanding podcast. Uh, 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 the, their work with the TED Radio Hour produces outstanding podcast. Um, 99% Invisible is an example of a podcast that has regular applicability to social studies classrooms. There is a shocking amount of, um, really great content out there that for a little bit of investment on your part to listen to it and maybe create some, some, some guided notes for kids. Uh, you could start, have kids listen to a 20 minute podcast, either in a flip classroom model or in your classroom and then have fodder for extraordinary discussion and debate. And that triggers a, a thought and a reminder. And maybe this is something either my wife could do in third grade or I can do with fifth and sixth grade is if, if parents want to volunteer, you know, yes, we can have you come sponsor the party or, you know, come, come bring treats or, you know, be a chaperone on the field trip, whatever. But how about, you know, contributing to our wakelet where we're curating some content that relates to this topic because none of us have an unlimited amount of time. Um, But yeah, that is, that is true. Uh, I don't know. And if anybody knows someone out there that's doing that with parent volunteers, I think that would really, really be cool, right? To sort of crowdsource the, the discovery and aggregation of curriculum related like podcasts specifically. I mean, it could be videos and other things too. Um, but that's a, that's a great idea. Well, um, go ahead. I was just going to say, and I can give a really specific example of this because I actually, uh, wrote a lesson plan on this that, um, and I, I'm a little shy to admit this that's available for sale on Teachers Pay Teachers, but the, um, there's a really amazing, uh, uh, podcast called Gravy from the Southern Foodway Alliance and they're telling story, the, their taglines are telling stories about the New South and they had a really fascinating podcast on prison food. And, um, the reason why, um, I, I was listening to this, uh, uh, on a daily walk uh, several months ago and, I immediately went to this notion that it's in a really an interesting way because some people have sued, uh, 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 incarcerated folks have sued um, uh, 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 state prisons, federal prisons for the food being inadequate and it violating um, uh, 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 your civil rights and the specific um, uh, Bill of Rights uh, uh, ban of cruel and unusual punishments. And, uh, you know, cruel and unusual punishments oftentimes, you know, gets mired in death penalty conversations in your classroom. If you don't really want to go there, at least right away, one of the ways you could do that is to discuss, you know, to go, kind of go around the issue and discuss it from a, a much more, um, uh, I, I think, accessible way. And so I heard this 20 minute uh, uh, podcast on uh, the, the kind, the changing nature of cuisine in, in prisons. And I would, you know, I would have loved to utilize that in, in my government classroom when I was in a social studies classroom. Well, you know what? We're talking about podcasts and the flexibility of them. And I think we may just need to go a few minutes over because uh, we will do Geeks of the Week. But I would I would love for you, if, if you don't want to wait till next time, to talk about this motherboard article on uh, this hosting site. Do you want to oh. do that or do you want to? <laughs> yeah, I do. Food, that's your, that's I... your food, for, food for thought one. So Yeah. So, okay. So what happened was, okay, this is from Motherboard, which is uh, uh, the, the tech, the tech uh, uh, site by Vice. Um, vice.com. And, um, and I, I laughed at this. It's not really a laughing matter because, um, uh, uh, it, 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 it's, it's bad news, but, um, there was a video sharing site and it, it's not one of the, 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 you know, the well-known video sharing sites. Um, uh, uh, vid.me, I believe was the name of the website. And it's a really, um, really, uh, common one with large mainstream news media sites use vid.me. It's a, it's a platform for hosting video if you don't want to use, you know, the YouTube. And the domain expired. And so someone picked up the domain, right? Which is not uncommon when domains expire, especially ones that, that, you know, have a lot of traffic to them. And it was redirected to a hardcore porn site. And so I just, you know, uh, I, I, and in fact, I wouldn't even, if, if you're sensitive at all to, to these topics, don't go to the article, right? Because it, it's, it, you know, the article itself, uh, you know, is not shy in describing, um, you know, the kind of content that ended up, but, um, you know, on the Intelligencer and on the Washington Post and on the Huffington Post, um, New York Times Magazine, 
um, and a host of other, you know, pretty mainstream websites, instead of having, you know, videos that were hosted by this, you know, otherwise mainstream tool, it was showing off um, various uh, that. So what I would say is that I, I'm, I'm, I'm a big advocate for balanced uh, um, uh, uh, blocking of websites when you're filtering, you know, and, and I realize it's a federal law uh, and it's hooked to a whole lot of funding and, and important things. Uh, uh, and it's true of libraries and schools. Filters itself aren't going to really do a whole lot because, you know, someday a domain could expire and suddenly, you know, uh, that, uh, um, you know, a, a site that you trust is showing you content that you don't, uh, that really shouldn't be there. So, um, it's a cautionary tale, I think, that really no filters ever, ever, ever going to, uh, uh, block content that we, we might all almost universally agree is unacceptable for people under the age of 18 to see. And, you know, bad stuff happens. Hey, and some, you know, <laughs> if you ever embedded content from Vidme on your website, the article says that basically any embed is redirecting to their homepage to, mm -hmm. to that content. So, yeah, if you've got a blog with uh, posts up, you might check and make sure um, that that's that's not affecting you. Um, it also. Yeah. So the Web of 2021 is not the Web of 1995. Yep. Um, all right. Well, how about some geeks of the week? Uh, I'll go fast. I have three. Uh, Google. That's an incredible tool called Paint with Music. Uh, they also have their Google uh, Music Lab, but this is one of the uh, tools that, that Eric Kurt showed. It reminds me of um, uh, Singing Fingers, which was an MIT Media Lab app that you could sing and, and touch your tablet and, and it would record and then you could play it back. And anyway, uh, really, really you know, creative and, and interesting. Uh, Tony Vincent had a fantastic session yesterday at the Texas virtual conference I was mentioning called Digital Learning Activities with Google Drawings. And I've got that link in to his, his uh, site, which is just fantastic. And then the last one is Twitter bookmarks. I guess they've been a thing for years. I didn't even know they existed. Has anybody else used Twitter bookmarks? When you go to the Twitter page, just look on the left side. It says bookmarks. I didn't even know that. So those are my geeks of the week. Wow. Yeah, I didn't know that those existed either. So, and this was a, uh, in addition to sharing that wonderful, uh, uh, episode of the Gravy podcast, uh, NCCE, the Northwest Council for Computer Education, uh, their 2022 conference will be at the beginning of February 2022. At this point, um, all, uh, speed ahead towards a face to face conference, but they are now taking, um, presentation proposals. Uh, I, it's a wonderful event. Uh, you come hang out with me. I believe that Dr. Fryer is going to try to make an appearance um, at the 2022 events. So you can come hang out with me and Wes. Almost certainly we will do some kind of podcast event there, um, uh, whether it's a meetup or it's a, a live broadcast of the podcast. Uh, it'll be it'll be super wonderful, whatever it is that we do. Um, but if you've got something to share, um, there's a link uh, in, in our show notes this week to uh, go and register to present at NCC 2022. Awesome. Well, Wes, where can we find you on the internet? Hey, I just updated my homepage. So just go to westfryer.com and you can click on uh, Let's Connect and get all kinds of links. How about you? Um, I am, uh, best place to find me is Twitter, Tech Savvy Teach. Um, I also have a webpage that um, is, is, is uh, uh, simple, but, but uh, does have information about me, Neifert, N-E-I-F-F-E-R.com. Um, but Twitter is probably the best place to find me. But this thing here we do is the EdTech Situation Room. It is a once-week podcast where Wes and I go through and talk about technology and kind of shoot it through the educational lens. If you can't join us live, although we wish you would, just check out our uh, Twitter feed, uh, EdTechSR, to get links to our live uh, Facebook and uh, YouTube broadcast every week. And you can hang out with Peggy George in our chat room on YouTube. If you can't Join us live. Download us wherever finer podcasts are aggregated. We're available on every app that I've ever downloaded on an, an iOS or a uh, Android device. You can also download uh, episodes from our website at techsr.com. And there you can also check out every link we talk about every week. Um, we appreciate you joining us. Uh, we are here on Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Mountain Time, 9 p.m. Central, sometime in the middle of the night, UTC. Um, but if you can't join us live, 
feel free to download and listen to us afterwards. Uh, we wish you a great week. Stay safe, stay savvy, and we'll see you next time here on the Antic Situation Room. Good night.